to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Fulick. And welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fulick. And as always, we like to talk about things related to business continuity, disaster planning, emergency response, crisis management, and basically anything related to resiliency and anything attached to those topics. As always, I'll ask you listeners if there is a topic you'd like us to talk about on the show or if you'd like to be a guest on the show, please feel free go to the Voice America page for the show. And underneath the graphic, there is a button that says send host an email or, or something to that effect. I do get all emails. I do respond to all emails. And we'll see about getting you on the show or possibly finding someone to talk about the topic you want, want us to um, bring up here. And uh, of like to remind everyone, on May 29th and 30th, I will be again at the Continuity and Resilience Today conference and hopefully get to meet a whole bunch of new people and we'll get some of those speakers on the show like we did last year. A very successful conference, some great speakers, great people, and I'm sure it's going to be great for their second conference this year. And of course, if there's any uh, sponsorships you would like to have on the show, you know, get your product or brand or service mentioned here, you know, we've got some sponsorships open. So feel free again, send me an email and we'll send you some information. Now, a lot of you listeners that have listened for a while now will probably know I attended the Disaster Recovery Journal Conference in Phoenix last year. And we had a live broadcast, which was fantastic, successful, uh, spoke to a lot of great people. And I was even lucky enough to finally, and I do mean that, finally get to talk to someone I've been wanting to meet for a few years now. But every time I turned around, she was either surrounded by a bunch of people or you know, she was already shuffling off to the next engagement because I know she's a pretty uh, busy lady. So I, I was very happy on our live broadcast. I think it was either the last person or second last person. I was finally able to get her on the show and finally able to meet her. And today... I'm very happy to have my guest here. I'd like to welcome to the show, um, kind of a rock star, uh, in in my opinion, in the business continuity realm. I'd like to welcome Regina Phelps. Phelps, sorry, even I said it wrong now. Regina Phelps. Regina, (laughs) welcome to the show. Alex, you're so kind, and thank you for that gracious and wonderful introduction. And I'm actually sitting in my office blushing, so thank you so much. You're most kind. It's a delight to be with you. (laughs) Success. (laughs) And you have a a new book out, which is actually what we're going to talk about today, Crisis Management. So congratulations on that. Because that came out, uh, I think. Yeah, and I I was even lucky enough to get it autographed in my copy in Phoenix, so quite happy about that. I, owe, I, I guess I owe you I owe you one of my books, and I'll sign that and bring that to Phoenix if you're there next year or this year. Absolutely, actually. I'll be there. So I look forward <laughs> to that opportunity to read it. Well, we we are planning on being there, and I am uh, committing to doing another live broadcast from Phoenix. So there you go. Fabulous. So Fabulous. We'll, we'll be running into you again. So thank you. I, I know I know I called you the rock star in the industry, but because we do have some, uh, not some, we have a lot of global listeners, literally in countries around the globe. 
can you kind of tell us uh, about yourself, you know, how you got started in this industry, you know, your background and, you know, how you got up to, you know, writing the crisis management book? Sure, sure. I'd be happy to do that. So I started my career originally in the field of nursing and I was a staff nurse for a few years and I became a hospital administrator. And back way long ago in 1982, I actually had finished my master's thesis and it included essentially uh, a plan to create a company like what I currently own uh, in a hospital. And I decided to embark on actually starting it myself in 1982. And so since then, we've actually been uh, consulting and practicing in the field of business continuity management, actually really before that discipline even existed. Back then, we primarily focused on emergency management, but as disasters continued to occur in California in particular, where we're headquartered in San Francisco, uh, we saw a great opportunity to really look at how you could actually recover a business. And so... We've been doing business continuity and crisis management since 1982, so 37 years. And my core specialty, myself, is in the area of crisis management, exercise design, which I design about 100 exercises a year. And I also, because of my nursing background, I have that quirky interest in diseases. So we've been doing pandemic planning since 1997. That's that's interesting to hear all the different backgrounds, uh, but it's even more interesting to hear that, you know, you started in 1982, and the focus back then was on emergency management. And I know from when I started, it was still, you know, in the late 90s, it was still in the uh, IT area. So it's interesting yes. to see yes. the the new the the growth and where we've come, you know, over these years. Yeah, yeah, it's actually fascinating to sort of see that transition, and and I think increasingly as uh, as people begin to realize uh, being able to recover your technology was nice, but if you couldn't recover the business, it didn't help to have the technology. And so I think every time there was another crisis, especially in California, which is certainly uh, earthquake-centric, uh, people begin to realize, oh, my gosh, so we have our technology, so what? Uh, where do we go? What do we do? And that also then really led to the importance of crisis management from a holistic perspective about how do you manage the overall response to the company in totality. Yeah, I, rem- I remember telling people a uh, long, long time ago that, uh, you know, just because all the pretty green lights are on your servers doesn't mean anyone can use them. You know? That's exactly right. That's exactly so. right. And I think that the thing about, uh, you know, our, our industry is so fascinating from the perspective of terminology. And so when I often meet with a client, a potential client, we'll, we'll talk about, well, let's align our glossary because many times people <laughs> talk about terms and use them quite differently. And I think the crisis management term in particular is one that actually means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, And so there is no, unfortunately, one holistic uh, definition that everyone gravitates around because it really depends on who you ask. So if I was to ask um, a crisis communications person what uh, uh, what crisis management means, they would talk about preserving the brand and identifying messaging, and they would talk about how they could actually respond with communication for a particularly negative event. Or if you asked a, a business continuity professional what crisis management means, they might talk about it from the perspective of restoring the business. Or if you talk to an executive, they might talk about brand management. So when we mm-hmm. talk about crisis management and what my book is about is this holistic view. So really building a framework across the company in all of the different locations where you could have a resilient strategy, you've got a process, and you've got teams, and it's something that everyone universally uses and understands. And so that's really what we've been trying to focus on in our practice for many years now is sort of spreading this holistic, uh, holistic version of crisis management. Yeah, I've, I've found over the years that uh, terminology you know, is, is one of the things that kind of trip us up, depending on who you yeah. talk to and our backgrounds. We all have different meanings. 
you know, and, right, and right. so you could talk for half an hour about crisis management and you know exactly what it means, but someone who's listening has a different definition is probably going, what the heck is she saying? <laughs> right, exactly. So the first thing that we always have to do, even amongst our professional colleagues, is to align our glossary. And I find that that's very important. And I think if we look at, in particular, crisis management from this holistic perspective, then it begins to really help you frame it within an organization. And yes, many pieces and parts of the things I mentioned earlier are going to dovetail very nicely into all of that. But I think mm-hmm. we need to look broadly at it being a holistic response and recovery strategy for an organization. So knowing that, what isn't crisis management? Well, you know, that's kind of a good, 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 uh, a good way to look at it. So when you look at what isn't crisis management, I think when you look at it, I, I would say, again, all of these, these particular silos. So let me, let me, let me pull back and, and maybe answer it slightly a different way. Many mm-hmm. times if you look at our profession, we essentially have four major activities that are done in any organization. Emergency response, which of course is the recovery and, 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 and care and feeding, if you will, of people at the time of crisis. When the fire alarm goes off, what do you do? There's an active shooter, what do you do? That's emergency response. You don't need a, you don't want a meeting or a, a or, or something like that. Everybody should know what to do and there should be clearer processes in place. That's kind of one silo. The second, is business continuity, the recovery of mission-critical, time-sensitive business processes. The third is technology recovery, which, of course, is the recovery of all of your infrastructure, networks, et cetera. And then lastly, the big silo is crisis communications, which is basically what kind of messaging are you doing to respond. So each one of those things truly aren't crisis management, but they all feed up into a superstructure, if you will, that goes above that. So if you imagine you have four silos on a piece of paper and you draw an umbrella over all of them, mm-hmm. all of that at the top becomes crisis management. So what's not crisis management is all the things that I mentioned, but how it's managed overarchingly in the organization with executives, tactical recovery teams, et cetera, that's where crisis management actually sits. So. So it's like the the umbrella. I don't want to say term, but the umbrella that in, uh, captures all these other different pillars within it, right? Yes, exactly. And so, as people are 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 performing their certain skills, or finding that they have certain requirements or needs, or gosh, I need more people, or I need more equipment, or I need, you know, to be flown certain places, or whatever they might need, they're going to be sending up those requests and needs and status to that crisis management structure or team that's going to be responding holistically to the organization. And a good way to think about it is this: imagine that you're in a catastrophic event like an earthquake, and let's say, of course, everybody wants to recover their business, but there are lots of needs. And maybe maybe all total, maybe you have to replace 500 laptops. Let's just give you an example. But maybe all you can get is 100 laptops because of the crisis. Well, who gets mm-hmm. those 100? Everybody in the business thinks they're important. Everybody thinks that they should have them. But the yeah. crisis management team holistically is looking at their situation, and they are the ones that are having the company-wide view. They're going to be making those kinds of resource decisions. That's true. You know, I, I've been in that situation before where, uh, you know, we it's almost was 100 laptops, actually, or desktops. And everyone <laughs> said, well, we need, you know, 400 more of them. It's like, are you sure? Can you not do shift management? You know, can you not, you know, does everyone right. really need this? You know, so I've been right, in that, right. that, <clears throat> excuse me, that situation. I, you got me thinking of something now. With the uh, ongoing talk of organization, organizational resiliency, you know, including health and safety and information security, privacy, facilities groups, do you think that's slowly 
um, falling under that um, crisis management umbrella, or do you think they're Without separate? Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. So, for example, in information security, cyber breaches, I think there's just becoming now an awareness uh, of how important a very functional crisis management process is in an effort to manage some sort of information security event, whether it's a breach, a denial of service attack, whether it's a ransomware, whatever it might be. Because when you stop and think about it, that information security event is really an impact to the business. Whatever that has mm-hmm. occurred is impacting the business and its ability to do its time-sensitive, mission-critical functions. So one of the key things organizations should be thinking about when they're really looking at their cyber effectiveness is how do those cyber events feed up into the company's overall crisis management process. Understanding that if there are privacy issues, of course, there's attorney-client privilege and other types of things, but still you're managing it holistically across the organization. So I think increasingly we have seen far more interest, interestingly enough, in crisis management today because of cyber events and people realize within an organization they don't know how to manage the impact. And crisis management is all about managing impact holistically across an mm-hmm. organization. I agree. I, I, I've seen in some organizations, I even worked in one, where the security aspect, you know, cyber piece was all managed differently with, you know, different mm-hmm. crisis management team members, you know, which is fine. They had their own crisis management team. However, there seemed to be, a, what do you call it, a, a disconnect, you know, yeah. when all of a sudden people who were so used to a their traditional crisis management team structure and who does what and where everything is, all of a sudden having people outside of that structure saying, this is what you need to do. Right, right. And that gets to a really important issue within our field. And it's a good news, bad news story. The good news is, is that we don't activate very often. So if I look at our client population, we work for over 500 companies. Most of them, the vast majority of them, do not have an activation on an annual basis. That's great news. Mm-hmm. The bad news is they don't activate on a regular basis. So what does that mean? We're not very good at this unless we practice. So what I tell people when they say to me, I want to have this whole other structure that responds to a cyber event, I sit back and look at them and go, look, you want to maintain another another system, another way of yeah. managing something when you already have one? And by the way, you don't use it very often. So you yeah. want to make sure that you've got all of these events like a cyber event that actually feed up into a crisis management process. And this is something I talk a lot about in my book. Uh, and, and what I see in my client population, and it's a term I use called feeders. There's all kinds of things within a corporate structure, either just at the, at the uh, corporate headquarters or, for that matter, anywhere else where that company might exist where something could occur. How does that event, whatever it is, get funneled up into the right people to make an assessment? Does this need to be something that we do something about? And how do we manage it? And that's what I call feeders. If you imagine something happens at a sales office of a company that may have 100 locations, how does that event that occurred at the sales office bubble up to the right level within the corporate structure so it gets assessed in a timely manner? And if something needs to happen in a corporate response, or even for that matter locally, that it's done in a timely way. That's super important. And that gets back Mm -hmm. to the three things that I think are absolutely essential for any crisis management process and team, and that is that there's clear identification of roles and responsibilities at all levels. 
so the corporate mothership, any sort of other location within the company, there's got to be people on the ground, even if it's a small sales office, who understand that their job is to assess the situation and reach up. So roles and responsibilities, super important. The second mm-hmm. really is, and I often don't find this, is an incident assessment process and team that actually evaluates incidents as they come forward so they can be assessed in a timely manner and people can act quickly. And then the third thing I don't often see is I don't see a process for literally what's called action planning, which is part of the incident command system, which is how you pull together the right people, you develop a plan of action and a process, and then you act on that so that everybody knows what everybody else is doing. And I kind of, and my belief is that if a company just has those three things, clearly identified roles and responsibilities, they have an assessment process and a team structure at all locations, and they actually have the ability to develop an action plan, that that is the hallmark and really the backbone of any good crisis management process or, or program. I agree with you. And uh, thinking back to what we uh, were talking about just a minute ago about having different structures, having two structures basically built around the same thing where nobody knows what the other side is doing, that could just cause complete chaos. You know, right. One, right. one thing should be involved. One side's going to think okay. it should be involved. The other one is involved, yeah. but they're both going, hey, who's doing what? And then before you know it, you're actually not getting anything done. Right, right. And I see that in lots of organizations at, at all kinds of places. So when we actually start an engagement with somebody, one of the first things that we do is we sit down. If, if you just, Let's imagine it's a large company and they have a corporate headquarters and they have multiple locations. The first thing we sit down with them, and I detail this in my book extensively, is we sit down and talk about, let's map your world. What is your world? Mm-hmm. You know, here, if you imagine a big whiteboard, and at the top, you draw the mothership, as I like to call it, which is the corporate headquarters. Okay, great. Well, then, even within the corporate headquarters, there could be a variety of teams and other Mm -hmm. issues that might be literally feeding problems to you, like a cybersecurity instance, like a knock, for example. What about a call center who all of a sudden starts getting a million calls about something? And some of our clients that are big insurance carriers, they have catastrophic teams. That's another example of where things come to you. Security Operations Center, uh, those are all examples of feeders at the corporate level. But then if you imagine below that, every location you have is a feed, feed, a feeder of an issue potentially to you. Have you identified those all? Have you mapped them? Do all of those locations know, oh, my God, something really bad happened? I'm going to pick up the phone immediately. And I'm going to call the Corporate Security Operations Center because they're going to immediately connect me with that incident assessment team at the corporate level so I can tell them what's happened. You know, that kind of simple kind of mapping of your world, understanding the tiers, who talks to who. If companies did that, it would save them a tremendous amount in dealing with these really critical issues that often kind of fall apart because they aren't assessed in a timely manner. The wrong people are working the issues. And next thing you know, it's become a reputational crisis in that organization. And we're going to talk about a little bit more of that in our next segment, because we've come to the end of our first segment. Uh, Today, we're talking with Regina Phelps, author, entrepreneur, and speaker, uh, whose latest book is Crisis Management, and we'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Attention. 
If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back to the show. Today we're talking with Regina Phelps, and we're talking about crisis management, um, her latest book. And uh, Regina, we we got in some uh, great talks about feeders and different parts of crisis management, what it is and what it isn't. And you talk about something in your book, hard and soft crisis. Can you explain what you mean by that? What's a hard crisis sure. or what's a soft crisis? Sure. Thanks very much. Because that's a, I think it's a good, uh, a good place to, to really sort of dig in. How we view a hard, what we call a hard crisis, is one that's physical in nature. So it is, it is an obvious event. So it's a tornado. It's a bomb. It's an active shooter. The thing about a physical or hard, as we call it, uh, crisis, is that there's a clearly identified beginning, a middle, and an end. It's usually clear also who's in charge, because in most of those incidents I mentioned, emergency responders, police, fire, et cetera, are initially going to be the folks in charge. And you do know when it's over, uh, and then you can begin to recover. That's markedly different from what we call a soft incident. In a soft incident, there's two great examples of that. One is a cyber-related event. Imagine a piece of malware that's been roving around in your system for months, which is pretty much the average. Nine months is the actual average that malware resides in a company's systems before it's identified. Or something like an illness. You can't see it. You don't know when it started. You don't know when it's going to end. You don't really know what's going to happen. And mm-hmm. it's really hard for people to get their arms around it, which is one of the reasons, I think, that a cyber event is so 
debilitating. When a company discovers they've had malware in their system, they can panic and throw up their arms, but then the next question is, well, now what? What are we mm-hmm. going to do? How long has it been there? That requires forensics. How long is that going to take? And they take days. They take weeks. I've had clients where it's taken months. So what do you do in all of that kind of difficult time where you don't even know what your true impact is? How are you managing it? So a soft event takes a while for people to get their arms around, and it really is one, especially in this day and age with cyber threats, that's really important for people to practice because teams, executives are, are, are really struggling with how to manage those things they can't see, they don't know if it's over, they don't know what to say. And from a communications perspective, it's particularly challenging because it's hard for you to confidently say, we've solved it, when in reality, you don't even know if it's over yet. And so that's why Mm -hmm. a soft incident is challenging and requires good practice on the part of a crisis management team. So with a hard and soft crisis, does that involve, we'll just use, you know, organizational, uh, organization ABC. Mm -hmm. They have a hard uh, crisis and or soft crisis. Is that two different team structures that get involved from the organizational side of things, or is it the same same people, or is it different teams that get in, involved? Like, That's, a you, That's a great question. That's a great question. How do you pull that together? So, in, in, in the way we design crisis management teams, it's the same structure. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the incident command system, and in my book, I talk at length about how that's a very valuable tool. But essentially, if you look at a crisis management process, the key thing you want to do is you want to have the same team always. Now, the question would be, do you need to activate all team members for every type of crisis? And the answer might be no. But you don't have like a structure for technology events or a structure for physical events. What you have is an overarching team that's capable of responding to any type of incident. And then what happens at the very beginning of an, beginning of an activation is the actual leadership says, okay, great, given this event, looking at who's on our team right now, who needs to be activated? Because in reality, mm-hmm. you should only really activate what you need. However, you would still want to make sure that you are communicating with all of the crisis management professionals in the team, even if they weren't activated. So if you had to call them up into the team, they would have a good idea of what's been going on because you've been communicating ideally your action plans with them so they can actually see it in real time. So no, no, no different teams. You might have lots of sub-teams below them, like there might be a cyber mm-hmm. response team or there could be a crisis communications process, let's say, but those teams all are going to feed up into this overarching crisis management process. I, I remember being at uh, one location, regardless of the crisis or incident, everyone was activated, and at that initial mm-hmm. gathering, that's when it was determined, okay, you four are not required. You four teams, you know, right. will you'll just copy you on everything. But initially up front, everyone was notified. Is that, yeah. was that yeah. a that's, good approach? Yeah. yeah, that's a very good approach. The idea is you want to make sure everybody on the team knows what's going on in case they have to stand up and serve. But mm-hmm. there's no reason to have people there that are that are engaged that aren't necessary at that moment. So, yes, keep everybody in the loop. You can bring them all together at the beginning and say, this is what's going on. Now five of you go away. But the idea is that you always want to keep everybody informed of what's happening. I think right. what you'll find is that the as, the, um, as practices occur and people are doing exercises and this hard and soft narratives, that the ones that are attracting the most interest, certainly on the part of the executives, are the soft ones. And that's because, again, it's that kind of enigma. We don't know. We can't see it. We can't feel it. We can't touch it. We don't even know if it's over. And 
those are ones that I think are really good to practice because it helps people mm-hmm. begin to develop some capabilities and, and, and understanding about the complexity of those events. So you talked about these different teams. Now, how do you get people on, on these teams and who should be on the teams? Because I've been in some situations where simply by virtue of being a director, you're automatically on it. And sometimes mm-hmm. that's not mm-hmm. always the best person. So what, what are your thoughts on right. that? That's a great question. So, um, and let me let me approach it from a couple of different ways. And let me just talk first of all as an example of a company. Using, a, let's say, we have a corporate uh, headquarters, and at that head, cor- corporate headquarters, using our terminology as far as tiers, that would be up at the tier one level. I would expect to see in a large company, at least with over a thousand employees, two teams. I would expect to see an executive team comprised of the CEO and his or her direct reports. And then I would expect to see a, a more tactical crisis management team below that. Let me describe kind of the kind of groups that I would expect to see in that team, and, let me, and then let me talk about the, the authority and responsibility piece. What I would expect to see in a crisis management team at that tactical level is I would expect to see the following types of departments represented. I would always expect to see facilities, security, technology, including information security. I would expect to see HR. I would expect to see the key lines of business, depending on what you are. That would vary. There would also be need potentially for legal and regulatory compliance, depending, again, on your industry. I would also expect to see communications in any of the communication entities, such as investor relations or government affairs or community relations, those types of folks. And then I would also expect to see uh, broadly some finance-related functions, so procurement, payroll, risk, insurance, and some basic accounting things so you could actually get money issued and that kind of thing. Now, that mm-hmm. team that I just described, it's really important. You mentioned an important thing, which is about authority, which is I construed to be authority and responsibility. How do those people get selected? Ideally, this team at the corporate level should not only get the responsibility of the job in this crisis management team, they should be given the authority to act. Now, that's a big mm-hmm. word there, authority. And a lot of times, executives will say, okay, yes, you can put on that team whoever you want, but if, when they want to do something, they have to come to me. Well, you know, that's not a very effective crisis management process. We should have a very clear uh, understanding of what those individuals are able to do, what their spending authorities might be, what kind of authorities they have in general. So what I recommend with my clients is that once they've drawn out who they think should be on these teams that I just described to you, they should bet that with the executives. And I'll tell you why. If you don't, especially for the leaders of the, of the overall tactical crisis manager team, if you don't have a really clear, identified authority given to those individuals and that those executives are comfortable with the people that are in charge, when the bad thing happens, whatever it is, those executives are going to walk into that room and go, who the heck is that? Why are they in charge? And then they feel the great need to take over. And mm-hmm. I've seen that happen. So I ask my executive teams, once we have actually, part of our process when we are doing consulting and building our teams for people, is we develop a straw man. We talk about what are we looking for in these teams. I want, especially in the leadership positions of the crisis management team, tactically, I want somebody who has good leadership skills. I want somebody who's decisive. I want somebody who has a clear understanding of the broad aspects of the business. And fourth, and critically important, is they must be known and well-respected by senior management. I also then, once that team structure has been built and the names have been dropped into all those spots, 
I, I sit down with my client and we'll go talk to the executives and say, this is the team that we're proposing. We ask that you review it and you need to bless it. And you need to understand that you are giving them the authority to act. And if you want to set spending principles or whatever it might be, that they should know that they don't have to come and ask for permission. Now, there'll be certainly strategic and big issues that the executives would be working on because that's their job. But these tactical business recovery issues should be ones that are clearly given the authority to act. And separating that tactical team from the executive team. So if you imagine there's two teams at a corporate headquarters, the the senior executives, so the C-suite, if you will, they primarily, in my opinion, have four jobs. Strategic policy and policy oversight of the organization. So the big kind of chewy issues, right? Uh, That could be anything from paying employees for a protracted period of time who aren't able to work, how you might be uh, uh, compensating uh, customers who've had a significant loss because of your crisis, whatever it might be, those big chewy issues, that's their job. The second thing that they need to be thinking about and doing is they would be approving large expenditures of funds that are above the signing authority of the tactical team below them. The third and super important job is what I call senior relationship manager. Every company, there are, there are very senior individuals. They should be then dealing with the big customer who's unhappy or a big regulator or possibly the governor of the state that they're located in or the mayor. So senior people in your company should be talking to senior people in whatever areas they need to. And then lastly, if it's really, really, really bad, want your CEO or a very senior executive to be on camera, like in an active shooter, a corporate mm-hmm. communications person should not be the spokesperson uh, when somebody's expressing their, their sadness. It should be the ex- most senior executive. So those are the kinds of things I look for when we're actually building up teams and organizations. So with the uh, tactical team, you're kind of empowering them to be able to do things, right? And the executive yes. team has to approve that. You know, yes, I empower them because it may in some instances, uh, provide some of these uh, teams, like facilities or something, a little bit more authority than what they had before. Would that be correct? Right, right. And I think, and and look at some disasters where you can't even reach the executives uh, easily. Think of an earthquake or think of some event of which there's really a significant impact to communications. If you hamper the corporate tactical crisis management team by saying, okay, you can do the variety of, you can do these smaller things, but if there's something, you know, that's really big, you have to come and talk to me. Well, you know, you may not be able to. And so I think it's really important that we're clear about what authority have we given to the crisis management team and what's the expectation of the executives as far as um, them having to approve things. That's an important conversation that needs to happen. So what happens if you know, you put your team together, and maybe you've been in this situation before, where you've identified people that fit all the criteria you need, but there's pushback from executives saying, no, that's not the person I want. I want this person, and the person they're identifying may not be the right person for that role. How do you manage that? How do you convince executive to either change their mind or like, hey, you know, this isn't right. This isn't the right direction. How would you address that? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that can be very touchy. And I think sometimes you're, you're not able to move them until you do one thing. What I always say to folks is if you, if you want to see if it works, let's do an exercise. And let's design mm. an exercise and see if those people are the right people. And I think whenever you start, start your crisis management process, exercises are very helpful not only for training, but also making sure that you have the right people in the job. 
And I think what you could use is you could use those exercise opportunities because maybe you're stuck with that person for now. Mm-hmm. can't do anything about it. But you can use that exercise opportunity to demonstrate to the executives. And when we do exercises, we always have as part of the exercise, those leadership positions are reporting status to the executives in real time, a 15-minute phone call on a bridge. That executive then can see that performance and see what's going on, and it can also then be evaluated because in our after-action reports, we'll talk about what worked, what needs improvement, and they can see if that person really is the best person for that job. Because you're right, Alex, sometimes you have to take who they give you, and it may not be the right person, and you're just going to have to work through that, and an exercise is the best way to do it. Well, I'd like to take a break now because I want to get to exercises because I know you're quite good at that. And I know you talk about it quite a bit in the book as well. So I'm going to end our second segment now. And when we come back, we're going to continue talking with Regina Phelps about crisis management. We're going to talk a little bit about exercising, how we validate this kind of stuff. So we'll be right back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com All round the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river. Like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back to the show. Today we're talking about crisis management with Regina Phelps. Regina, you touched on something just at the end of our last segment that uh, I wanted to make sure we uh, captured in this talk, and that was uh, validation and testing and exercising. How do you validate your crisis management teams? You started to talk about it, um, but how do you do that? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, The thing I think that's really important for any 
person who's in business continuity planning to really think about is that I believe the most important task you do as a planner is to actually do an exercise. Plans are important, yes, but I will tell you what happens in a real event. People do not run to find the binder. They don't go find the the computer that's got the document in front of them. They start acting in what they think is the right thing. And that Mm -hmm. means that people fall back to their previous training. And I would hope they don't have to fall back too far before they actually know what they're supposed to do. And that's where exercises are critically important. When people write a plan, they write it in a vacuum. It's what you think is going to work. But you're sitting in a comfortable office, life is great, you have no problems, and you're writing this document. But what happens when the earthquake happens or the hurricane or the cyber event? And now you can't find your plan or you found your plan and it doesn't seem to make any sense or you never thought about even grabbing your plan. So I think what happens is that an exercise really takes that document and breathes life into it. And it really makes people have to put on the coat of the crisis and then figure out what to do. So when we do a crisis management development process with a company, the first thing we have kind of a series of things that we do, and I'll just describe them because most of it's about exercises. The first thing is what I talked about earlier, which is actually whiteboarding what the company looks like and doing all the tiering and then developing all the documentation. That's kind of our first phase of an engagement. But the next three things we do are all exercises. The first one is a basic tabletop exercise with a workshop. And the workshop really walks them through the key aspects of their roles and responsibilities, super important, how they assess an incident and who does that, super important, how they develop an action plan. And then what we do is we give them a scenario to try it on. And the first exercise we do is pretty simple. It's an orientation style exercise, which is a a basic narrative. And they basically decide what they would do. So they tell us, I would do this, I would do that. That's a basic sort of tabletop, a pretty simple exercise and design. At that the point, they the kind, kind of look of at happy, the role, happy the responsibility. Response, right? Where everyone's happy they, around the table. Well, this is what I would do. Yeah. 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 They kind of look at, the, look, at the, look at the situation. They look at their documents and go, hey, Alex, that didn't really work that well. Let's change this. Okay, great. Or yeah. then they do different things. So that's trying it on, right? That's the first kind of exercise. To get people to really be good, they really need to actually do more than that. And everybody that I know that's a planner primarily does tabletops. And I'm not that I have a problem with a tabletop, but just think about it for a minute. People sit around a table, they're given a scenario, and then they talk to themselves and to maybe the facilitator, and they say, I would do this, I would do that. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, in a crisis, do you always get what you want? <laughs> Never. Does it always go the way you're supposed to? Supposed to? Of course not. Almost never. (laughs) Almost never. So if you're going to design an exercise, you better design an exercise where they don't get what they want. I want 100 laptops. You can only have 12. Well, now now what do I do? So the idea about progressing an exercise is we develop exercises that are called advanced tabletops where we use simulation teams and we provide injects into the exercise. You start with a baseline narrative in an exercise, but what moves the story forward are injects. And those are pieces of paper in a, in a simple, a more simpler version, a phone call and a more advanced one, where now you get another problem and you have a big issue and you have to solve it. And now when you want to solve it, you're going to go talk to a simulator. And they may not like your answer. They may not like your solution. Or they may not give you those 100 laptops. And what, mm-hmm. what that does is it makes you as the player, the exercise player as we call it, think more deeply. If I can make you think more deeply, Alex, in an exercise, I will make your plan really good. 
If all I do is have you do an exercise where I hear you say, I would do this or I would do that, you're never going to get deep and you're never going to really own the material. And that's what I look for in a well-designed exercise. Well, you're kind of doing it that way. You're kind of looking at your plan with rose-tinted glasses and the whole process, right? right? As the expression goes. Right, and I think... And that's how um, most exercises that I talk with, I talk to colleagues and ask them how they do them. That's what they do. And I'm really encouraging people to really push it. Push beyond Mm -hmm. that simple framework of using slides to do an exercise and letting people talk in groups about what they would do. It's good. Yes, don't get me wrong. But you will never get them more advanced in their thinking and you're never going to get your plans deeper. You're never going to get them to work on muscle memory, which is what I'm looking for. I remember working for an organization years ago, and they did one tabletop, and it was just before I actually came on board. So when I came on board, I thought, okay, I don't know if they've done a tabletop, so you know, we have to, the first one, I need to know where things are, so we'll do a tabletop. And they said, nope, we've already done one. I said, okay, fine. And we upped it, and it's, they started to become closer to simulation and a lot more the way you described, you know, a lot more mm-hmm. deeper dive into things. And that was what we did every year, you know, the simulation type thing and made it more detailed and and it used that brain muscle to use your phrase, you know, and it worked so much more. um, It it was much more successful than just sitting around the table saying, yes, everything's fine. You know, this is what I would do, you know, and laughing and having fun. It was like, no, it's a crisis. The the experience is really important. uh, And, and sometimes people will say to me, you know, what I always do with my exercise, I always use slides, I drive it by slides, and we're all sit around a table. And, and the first thing I'll say to them is, okay, do me a huge favor. Stop using slides. And they look at me like I have horns coming out of my head. Now, if you want to use slides at the beginning to basically lay out the beginning part of the exercise, kind of what the rules of engagement are, and maybe even the little bit of the intro to the narrative, But then you should stop using slides and start giving them additional problems and injects by paper. Because you know what? In a real crisis, no one stands in front of you with a PowerPoint presentation as every aspect of the disaster goes in front of you and says, okay, now, Alex, this just happened. That's not how it works. Somebody might hear it on a radio or somebody might get a phone call from somebody or they might get an email that tells them about the next problem. And then you want to see, does everybody share it with everybody else or do they know how to communicate if it's impacting beyond their area? And if you always feed them by slides, they never even think of that. All they're thinking about is, okay, what's the next slide, right? Yeah. What what do they call that? Death by PowerPoint? Yes, exactly. It's totally (laughs) death by PowerPoint. And they don't have a place in a well-designed exercise. I I agree with you completely. Um, I guess with these exercises as well, too, that could be a part of uh, not just the crisis management team, but uh, action plans as well. Part of continuous Mm -hmm. improvement, could it not? Yeah, oh, absolutely, absolutely. I think what you, what you're, what I, what I will normally see is that when somebody hires us to, to, for us to develop a crisis management process for them, you know, the first exercise, nobody knows what their job is. That kind of, that one I mentioned is kind of a workshop with a basic tabletop. Nobody knows what their job is, but we're all kind of figuring it out. About three or four months later, we do an extra, another exercise. It's an advanced tabletop. We've got simulators. It's a little bit more, feels a little bit more real. Wow, people remember a little bit, but they don't remember everything, and, and we kind of struggle a little bit, but, oh, well, gosh, you know, we're, we're making progress. The third time I see them in the course of an engagement like this is about three months later, 
and we do uh, a functional exercise where things are delivered by phone, and there's a video talking about what's happened at the company, and there's emails, and and oh my gosh, people actually understand their job, and that's because they've really had to walk the talk. They've really had to do the work. And then the mm-hmm. critical thing after those types of exercises is what do you do after that in order to get changes uh, in your organization? And that's in the development of a really effective after-action report. Well, I think that's you know one of the key pieces. I, I've seen so many, you know, not, not even ones that I've been a part of, but uh, you have your reports after tests, you know, here's our executive summary or test findings, whatever you want to call that document, and then nothing happens. And you do the mm-hmm. same test next year, and you encounter the exact same things. Oh, it breaks my heart when I see that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I yeah, think I, there's a couple of key things that I tell people is, when you do an exercise, first of all, you want to write a really good after-action report. It should be done. We promise our clients that they get the after-action report within seven days. Why do we flip that back so quickly to them? That window of opportunity that you have is only open for a short period of time. If you wait a month to get them an after-action report, that window is long closed. So first of all, you have to have a timely after-action report. Secondly, you also need to know where is it going to go. Ideally, you've got an executive sponsor on your senior team. They need to be seeing that document. Ideally, you have the opportunity to present it to uh, your executive, maybe a corporate risk committee. Mm-hmm. Ideally, also what you want to do is have a business continuity steering committee where they can review that those findings that you had and see what needs to get done. And they can follow up to make sure that, indeed, those things have gotten done. Because you're right, Alex, sometimes a report gets issued and no one does anything. And that's because there's no oversight. There's no oversight. Mm-hmm. And that's a little bit probably because they don't have very good business continuity governance, don't maybe have a good executive sponsor or no executive sponsor, and there's nobody kind of watching the, the house, so to speak. And they don't have to report up to say, you know, there's 10 things that need to be done from this after-action report, and nine of them haven't gotten done. Well, somebody needs to have a little bit of a stick to say, you need to, this needs to get closed. This needs to get done. And I guess part of that, too, is if you do have an exercise uh, with your crisis management team and it's it doesn't have the backing of, uh, you know, the executive level and, the, you know, the, the yep. tactical members are just kind of uh, kind of thrown together, not, yep. uh, you know, yep. the proper people in the right spots, then it's like, oh, well, it's more of a tick box on an audit report. Right, right. Exactly right. And it breaks my heart when I see organizations just doing exercises to tick a box. Because really what they are is they are the most powerful tool a planner has in their arsenal to improve a program and to make a company more resilient. But again, this goes back to what makes a truly successful crisis management process or even a business continuity overall uh, in an organization is, you know, you have to have ideally an executive sponsor who believes that your work is important. They need to be able to... You hear periodically from the, the uh, business continuity crisis management organization what the status is, and there needs to be some honest discussion about that. As many times there, it's not that people aren't telling the truth, but they're just not giving them the full information about how either prepared or not prepared they are. But executives need to really invite that so that they're not surprised or held off, you know, or, or, or like shocked when something happens and there's not the appropriate response. So having an executive sponsor, super important, and market to them on a regular basis by sending them updates about what's happening to other uh, companies or what could have happened at a different location or how you guys responded. Or I think we need to learn how to sell better about what we do every mm-hmm. single day to provide value to an organization. 
I think you called that um, in in Phoenix a, a what was it soft soft something. Yes. Uh, you you had an expression. It's for called it, right? soft marketing. Soft marketing. Soft right? marketing. I call it. actually covert marketing is what I most commonly call it. We have to be able to covertly market what we do for a living because every day we are providing value to an organization. There's no way that we can definitively say we're saving them money, but we can certainly say every day that we are providing value. And, and next time your boss stops you in the elevator, you should be able to say, in, you know, in, in the elevator speech, what value am I providing to this company right now in crisis management and business continuity? And it better be a good list. Yeah, I agree. And at that, we've come to the end of our show. Uh, Regina, thank you so much for being a part of this. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Alex. I've enjoyed it very much. And um, uh, I'll let you know, uh, I know I said it during the break, but if there's other topics you want to talk about, you have an open invite to come back. And I know there are a couple I think we uh, touched on during this show. So uh, I'll send Great. you a note. <laughs> we'll see. Hey, thanks so much. It was back. a delight. I enjoyed it very much. Uh, great. And to everyone out there, uh, just a reminder, May 29th, 30th, I'll be at the Continuing Resilience Today conference in Toronto. Um, if you have any topics you'd like us to talk about, please send me a note. And if there's anything uh, with regards to sponsorships or adverts you'd like to promote on the show, please feel free to send me a note. Otherwise, to everyone out there, thanks again, Regina, and to everybody listening, stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.